Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. Hi, welcome to another session on the Prison Mindfulness Summit. And I'm thrilled to be here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Yellowbird. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Well, it's really great to have you. I really appreciate you giving the time to do this. And uh, it's, it's been great having you involved in our community with the Engage Mindfulness Institute and Prison Mindfulness Institute. And uh, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. So I'm going to start by sharing a bit of your background with our audience to familiarize them with you and your work. And then we'll jump right into the conversation. Sound good? Sounds great. Great. So Michael Yellowbird, IMTACMT hyphen P, which is your certified mindfulness teacher professional, which you uh, earned through uh, our Engaged Mindfulness Institute program. And then MSW PhD is Dean of the Faculty of Social Work at the University of Manitoba. He is a member of the, correct me if I don't um, pronounce this right, Manden Hidasta, Hidasta and Arikara Nation. You want to say those for me? Yeah, pretty close. Uh, Mandan, Hiratsa, and Arikara. Oh, Arikara. Yeah. yeah. So Mandan, Hiratsa, and Arikara Nation in North Dakota. He is a member of the International Mindfulness Teachers Association and is a certified professional mindfulness facilitator and teacher. He has been involved in um, meditation, mindfulness, and indigenous contemplative practices for more than 45 years. His research focuses on mindful decolonization and neurodecolonization. He has implemented meditation programs and conducted mindfulness research in indigenous communities in the U.S. He is the author of numerous scholarly articles and the co-editor and co-author of several books that focus on decolonization and in social work, mindfulness, and, and with indigenous peoples. He is the creator of the, now you're really going to have, I'm going to say it in English, the Mind Beautiful All Calm curriculum. Would you give us the, the, uh, your indigenous name for that? Sure. I'll, I'll say it kind of slow because it, it's kind of, it's, it's a long name, but it's Sishu Do Do Thank you. Which translates into English, I probably roughly as mind, beautiful, all calm. Yes. Um, it's an uh, Arikara mindfulness curriculum for youth. Uh, his mindfulness and neuro decolonization works are featured on several mindfulness podcasts. His most recent, uh, well, we're going to put uh, one of your recent articles. It'll be there on the website. When people are looking at this now, um, you'll be able to see that link there. So, uh, and when we finish, before we finish it, I'm going to ask uh, ask you to direct people to where they can find out more about your work. And I know you have a website you can direct people to. So let's jump into the conversation. So, uh, Michael, you have worked with and developed mindfulness-based curriculum for Indigenous youth. And in terms of connecting with our conversation today with the broader summit topic of prison mindfulness, uh, which includes offering mindfulness-based programming, emotional intelligence programming, contemplative spiritual programming, uh, with uh, both youth and adults who've been placed at risk, who, who are incarcerated, who are returning to the community. And um, I would imagine that all indigenous youth uh, could be considered among youth placed at risk just by nature of um, being indigenous youth in, in the U.S. and Canada. Um, and uh, due to the impact of intergenerational trauma 
as well as the ongoing and, and current marginalization and oppressive of Native people, Indigenous peoples in, in North America. So I'm wondering if some of the youth you have worked with have also been court involved or, or system involved. Why, why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the youth you have worked with? Yeah, um, maybe, maybe it's, it's uh, just kind of important, I think, just to kind of start where, um, where mindfulness is with these youth that I worked with. Um, it's, it's really uh, important for folks to know that most indigenous people, mindfulness meditation was an ever-present daily ceremonial part of the life. And quiet meditations on the sacred uh, during ceremonial fasting throughout, you know, these uh, deep meditative states that all, all incorporated prayer, singing and dancing. Uh, mindfulness, prayer, contemplation, fasting were all requirements for almost anyone from any tribal nation that wished to become a traditional doctor or healer. So it's, it's really important, you know, I think, to kind of start with that, you know, in the sense that beyond colonialism, there was another world that existed. And for indigenous people, a pure mind engaged in deep contemplative states, you know, and uh, using periods of fasting were all requirements, you know, to, to be able to kind of do these things that were important to the healing and, and delivery of traditional medicines, you know, of, uh, to the people. And of course, when, when people live this kind of impeccable life, it was, you know, they earned the respect and confidence of the people, the ancestors and the spirits that aided them in the doctrine. So um, during this colonization of indigenous people, many of the sacred meditative practices were destroyed, outlawed by American colonizers, and it left many tribal groups without the sacred ways they had used for millennia to heal and restore their well-being. And um, the, the consequences are, like we talk about, this disproportionality of indigenous people being incarcerated, right? So the, the consequences of all these disruptions are evidence, you know, today with all the serious health disparities, low life expectancy, depression, you know, anxiety disorders, diabetes, obesity, all, all these violence, homicide, and assaults, which kind of, you know, gets people into these um, circumstances of incarceration. Well, yes, I, and I have worked with indigenous youth, and I, I know that indigenous youth, I've written about this before, are disproportionately incarcerated incarcerated into the juvenile detention facilities. I've even looked at statistics to see how they're treated, and I know that when they are incarcerated, indigenous youth are among the most abused, mistreated, and discriminated against while they're incarcerated. So the trauma that they experience growing up, like the adverse childhood experiences they have, like the violence, the poverty, the racism, the hate crimes, neglect, being kicked out of school, these are all compounded when they are incarcerated. So um, when I think about that, I think about how, you know, prior to colonization, there was no delinquents. There were no homeless youths. There were no unloved or neglected youths or abandoned youth. You know, and then, and settler laws really kind of singled out indigenous people for forced assimilation into colonial society. Customs, cultural practices, languages, beliefs, all this collectivist lifestyle was banned and spiritual leaders were actually imprisoned for practicing traditional contemplative practices. It would be like today, uh, um, uh, Fleet, if, if someone would say, we're going to lock up Fleet Mall because he's teaching mindfulness, right? And this is what was happening with indigenous people. Any ceremonies, any healing rituals were all banned. And, and probably the most egregious thing was the abduction of indigenous children by settler governments and religious Christian organizations that forced these kids and took them from their parents to attend boarding schools and residential schools. where The children really suffered horrible abuse, beatings for speaking their language, starvation diet, sexual abuse, 
uh, being incarcerated on school grounds. When you look at some of these boarding schools, they actually have lockup facilities in these schools where they lock these children up, like in Carlisle, Pennsylvania and other places. They were uh, forced to have their hair cut. And hair is a very sacred part of the child for many tribes, having their traditional clothing burned. I, one of my friends, I remember uh, when I was a professor at the University of British Columbia back in 90, 1992 to 1994, one of my friends I met in Vancouver uh, actually attended a, a residential school. And he talked about, you know, how the children, uh, indigenous children in these schools, when they were caught speaking their language, you know, they were beaten and they were, uh, they were um, incarcerated, they were put into these uh, lockups. But they even had darning needles pushed through the middle of their tongues as punishment, if you can imagine that kind of torture happening to kids. And so even today, in the U.S. and Canada, the bodies of indigenous children that were killed or murdered or died at these boarding schools, residential schools, are still being discovered on school grounds and other places. So when I, when I have all that context, then I think about, you know, yes, I've worked with incarcerated youth. And when I was a social work professor at Cal Poly Humboldt, which was formerly Humboldt State University in Northern California, I used to go over to Eureka and uh, California, and there was a, a juvenile detention facility there. I, I would, uh, one of my uh, graduate students asked me to come over and teach mindfulness to the youth. And uh, it was very um, moving because the kids, you know, still loved their culture, still respected their, their elders, but they were in this place, you know, where they were confined. And when I would come over there, of course, I was you know, an elder at that point anyway. And, uh, you know, they had so much respect for me when I came in. And I began teaching them, you know, about, you know, mindfulness and how it's such an important part of who they are. You know, whether, uh, whatever tribes they were, they were Hoopa, they were Wiat, they were um, Yurok, uh, different tribes that were all incarcerated. Not, not only the northern tribes, but the tribes from across, you know, the uh, state of California. And so I would go and I would do practices with them. Slowly and surely they started to talk about how they remembered their uh, grandparents or their mothers and fathers or uncles and aunties talking about meditative practices when they were uh, engaged in ceremony. So to them, it, it felt like it came very naturally, which I was, I was very happy about because, you know, they, they, they seemed to really take to it. They really seemed mm -hmm. to engage in it and they really uh, got deeply into it. But the first thing is like, we're not strangers to this. This is part of who we are. So it was, it was really um, humbling, but it was also very um, fulfilling. And I realized, you know, um, as I heard their stories, Everything I talked about was was pretty much part of their context, and of course, you know that had come down from generations. I mean, Northern California was, you know, the killing fields. Uh, one of the last places, the killing fields in the United States, where uh, genocide was happening to complete villages of indigenous people, and so they, you know, they lived through that experience. And so here they are now today, with their cultures taken away, their their uh, their religions banned, and the marginalized and and they're incarcerated. So they have all these different levels of trauma that, you know, we have to be aware of. So this is, uh, this is kind of, this is the work that I've done, you know, with uh, indigenous youth who are incarcerated. Mm. Mm. And so I had another question here, which was to ask, because I know you use the term indigenous mindfulness, and I think you kind of answered that already, but I don't know if you want to elaborate on that term. I, from what you said, I get that, that what we call mindfulness today, various forms of self-awareness and, connectedness with oneself, with the natural world, that this was simply part of indigenous culture. The culture was imbued with this. It was a, it was a way of living. And so when you use the term indigenous mindfulness today, what are you, what are you specifically referencing? 
Well, I have really come to believe that Indigenous mindfulness is really concerned with the sacred and understanding mm-hmm. our place as human beings in the great circle of life, all this interconnectedness that exists. And it's really about, as Indigenous people, I mean, I've heard this many times from many Indigenous people throughout the world, uh, it's about our responsibilities that we have to ourselves, to one another, and to all forms of life, the respect and the acknowledgement you know, that we give uh, all life. In my language, we use the word waruhti, which means holy or sacred, to express the sacredness of all life. The term sacred means special, revered, to be with spirit, life-giving and life-restoring. You know, just like the breath is life-giving and life-restoring, and that's it. The breath is sacred. And since time immemorial, indigenous people around the world have considered the world, the lands, the waters, all creatures, even the cosmos, to be sacred. And part of what I said was the, earth, the great circle of life. I, I believe that as, as I've looked at indigenous people, you know, in their contemplative practices around the world, indigenous mindfulness is really about engaging um, and kind of like John Kabat-Zinn talks about in that definition, in this purposeful act to develop this deep awareness to our connections to the sacred. And when we, when we engage in meditation, we do it on purpose, you know, with purpose to become enlightened, uh, enlightened, especially to our responsibilities and our place in the world, why we're here. And so the sacred and indigenous mindfulness is really about, you know, besides all these other phenomena, it's about our own history as human beings, the special songs, the dances, the stories, the memories, the ceremonies, seasonal and celestial events, even things that are unexplainable. You know, we meditate on those as human beings. And indigenous people have continued to do that throughout the world. So I think of indigenous mindfulness and that kind of thing is that it's, yes, it's about us, but it's really, we're just a small part of that connection. And how do we fit, you know, and I think that's really how mm-hmm. I understand it. Well, I love, I love that definition, the description. And, you know, the, the Pali word for mindfulness, sati, uh, is sometimes translated simply as remembering. So in this case, it could be remembering the sacred. And it seems like we moderns need to relearn how to connect with the sacredness of life. And, and maybe because of the impact of colonization, even some indigenous youth need to be reminded. But, you know, that sense of the sacred, when we are kind of aware of that or tuned into that, we're naturally awake. We pay attention because this is sacred, right? When, when something's sacred, you give it attention. You give it your whole attention, right? And you feel that sense of connection. It's our, it's, uh, you know, the way in modern life that we've, uh, lost that sense of the sacred. And, you know, it's all about me and the world. It's just this inanimate thing that I get stuff from. And and then we leave these very distracted lives and we've lost touch with, with our place in the world and with how incredibly powerful, magical, sacred, mysterious, amazing life and the world is. And so, you know, it's, it's it seems like mindfulness is really a process of, of remembering that and then being able to tune into that. But when we really kind of get that sense of the sacred that you're talking about, then in some sense, awareness can, can become self-sustaining almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really is. I think, and when a person engages, like in, to me, indigenous mindfulness on the land, for example, you know, the more you do it, the more often you do it, the longer you do it, you know, you have, of course, you know, changes in the cortical structure of the brain and also changes in your genetic, you know, profile. But also I think, you know, the thing that really kind of over the years has kind of made it a, kind of showing me the path is that, you know, um, is kind of when I, when I um, get into, you know, what um, sports people call the zone, 
when I'm when I am doing meditation on the land, for example, or doing it, you know, by the river or wherever I'm at, uh, you know, I get into the zone and, and I'm, I'm able to really bring that focus in and begin to, you know, to kind of hone in. And at that point, I get into, you know, what psychologists call the flow. And then the flow then begins to make sense where there's a connection to those things and you begin to understand your 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 really deep and important connection to those things. And, I, and I'm so glad, you know, uh, being an indigenous person that, you know, there's so many stories, so many prayers, so many songs, so many ceremonies that help us connect to that sacred, right? To get us, you know, to, to be in the zone and then to get into the flow with that. And so a song while you're meditating, a song, that a sacred song as you sing, as you mindfully run or you mindfully eat or you mindfully, uh, you know, sit upon the land, these are all things that sort of, you know, um, get us into that that flow, into the zone so that the flow can take place. So we actually are feeling and understanding and sensing and imbuing all these words or these activities, you know, in a really mm. uh, alive sense. And the, and the natural world is such a tremendous support for that. I mean, we can wake up to the sacred in the middle of New York City, but being out in the natural world is a tremendous support. And in my own core spiritual tradition, which is Tibetan Buddhism, there's a word called drala which generally references the manifest sacred in the world. It's, it's that quality of recognizing the sacred that literally sometimes is translated as beyond enemy, which really means kind of beyond duality, beyond differentiation. So it's that quality of, you know, direct connection. And, and so I remember, you know, working with various practices to cultivate that awareness, being up at places like there's a retreat center in the mountains of Colorado, where we did a lot of programs. And in some of those places, once you had that, uh, you know, once you had been uh, kind of reminded of that, being in some of those environments, it was just so obvious. So tremendous support getting out in the natural world. The, the, the mind tends to quiet down a bit when you're out in the natural world, maybe a little more easily than uh, when we're in the midst of all of our urban affairs or suburban affairs and so forth. But uh, yeah, and that's one thing about uh, traditional indigenous culture is completely it's not separate from the natural world, right? That's right. That's right. No, it's, there's a connection. And, and when you go back to the Genesis stories of most indigenous people, you'll find that that's the centerpiece. It's not about some deity. You know, it's about the relationship a person has with all these different aspects of life that we know. Like I said, the land, the waters, the mountains, the forests, the jungles, the streams, the cosmos, and all other forms of life, you know, animals. I mean, um, when you, when this, with indigenous people back from my part of the world where I come from, we have such a strong, uh, a, a, um, sort of a strong connection to animals, to different kinds of animals that, you know, our last names, are, 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 our traditional names are names of horses or names of birds or names of landforms that we have. You know, so my last name, Yellowbird, is, is you know, connected to that kind of uh, understanding. Mm -hmm. right? And so there are people with, you know, all those kinds of names that, of course, that's part of your identity. So it's reinforced not only through, you know, what you see, but you're, you're given these, you know, as a child, too. You're, you're, um, when, when you have a naming ceremony among our people to enhance your identity, one of the things they, they do is they, uh, the, the person, my grandfather, pressed into me the knowledge of the people as he gave me my name, pressed my, the knowledge into my head, into my face, into my lips, into my chest, into my ears and eyes as he, as he said these these sacred words. And of course, one of the things he said is that, you know, the, the rocks are witnessing are what are what happening. The river is witnessing what's happening. And, 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 and the, all the winds and everything is witnessing that you're getting this name. 
and that you have these responsibilities. So it's it's that's the kind of connection and identity that that you know that we get as as uh, young people when we're named in, in a traditional way. You know, and uh, I, I want to move on and, and talk about um, your research and work around uh, mindful and neuro decolonization. But just on kind of where we are right now, um, uh, you know, in um, in in Buddhist culture, where a lot of the roots of mainstream mindfulness come from today, uh, and also there's there's similar references in in current psychology and neuroscience. But when they talk about the sense fields uh, in the Buddhist traditions of mindfulness, they they talk about there's the sense organ, the actual physical eye. There's a sense field, which would be kind of understood as um, is is um, it's kind of like the the overall psychological, energetic uh, aspect of of that sense, and then there's the object of the sense. And they say through meditation practice and mindfulness practices, and they call those sense fields the ayatanas. And so they say what's happening when you're practicing mindfulness and awareness, you're purifying the ayatanas. They're becoming unobstructed. And therefore, you start to experience the natural world in all its vividness and sacredness. So many people have had an experience where they've sat, you know, an intensive meditation or mindfulness retreat, maybe for several days of all day sitting or or we and they come out on a tea break outside and suddenly the world jumps out and they've never seen colors so bright, so vivid. They've never felt so connected. And what what that's understood is actually our sense perception is being purified such that um such that we actually can experience the sacred. And when you were describing that naming ceremony, it sounds like, you know, many, in many traditions, various rites of passage are about purifying the senses or blessing the senses so we can awaken to sacredness through the five senses. Yeah, yeah, uh, completely. And uh, there's a lot of uh, ceremonies that indigenous people do. And that's why when I think about mindfulness or meditation, it's, it's you know, sitting and, and walking and eating and those kinds of things. But also um, ceremony and ritual are really critical pieces in order mm-hmm. to help bring, a, bring a, you know, alive that, that sense experience. And a lot of times, you know, people are, are really deep into fasting, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, ritual fasting, I, I fast every day. Every day I fast. Um, but, you know, long periods of fasting, as I mentioned earlier, were really important for to become a healer, to become a traditional doctor, to become a seer, to become one whose senses are open to these things. And so when you when you read about indigenous people, you'll, you'll see time after time after time where people go and they, they do this, you know, um, isolated, isolated event where they either by themselves or they may have helpers and they stay there for days. Uh, sometimes without food or water, and then they stay in this deep meditative state. They move their bodies and their places to where they can be that long without food or water. You know, I, I've done it myself personally, you know, for many days. Um, and and uh, I know what kind of intensity it takes. But, you know, as you say, the senses do come alive and you do experience this kind of greater sort of uh, awareness, you know, a very, very um, uh, kind of clear awareness, you know. So. Mm-hmm. So you were describing before some of the, you know, the atrocities and the countless atrocities that have happened to indigenous people around the world and in particular here in North America um, with the whole history of of the conquest and the colonization and the genocide of indigenous people in in North America. 
and then the whole uh, process of forced assimilization and, and the residential schools. And of course, we've all heard a lot more about that in the news of late and the, with the, the, you know, the atrocities coming to light and, and the remains being discovered and all of this just, just horrific. And, and, you know, we know a lot more about intergenerational trauma today. Uh, we know about not only what gets passed on through the relationship of parent to child, but also epigenetically, we know that these things can be passed on. And so, uh, you know, clearly there, there's all of this intense traumatization impact of the history of colonization and, and the still presence of the mindset of colonization. So before we talk about mindful decolonization or neuro decolonization, I wonder if you could talk about colonization kind of at the psychological level or the mindset level, uh, which is still very much present and, and has impacted all of us. And I, and I think from what, from what I understand of your work and others who I've looked at, that it's not only for the people who were colonized to, to go through some process of decolonization, but the colonizers as well. We all need to decolonize in some way, is my understanding, if I have it correctly. And it's, and it's about the psychology, the conditioning, the mindset, which is even we know today from neuroscience, that conditioning is actually in our neurobiology. So we literally need to change our brains, which I think maybe points in a direction of what you're talking about with neuro decolonization. So if you could first talk about, before we talk about the solution, if you could talk about more the problem of the of colonization, its impact, its conditioning on people. Sure, sure. Yeah, I've, I've developed a model around colonization, decolonization, and and um, of course, before we talk about uh, decolonization, it's important to understand the context of, of colonization. Mm -hmm. And it's really just on a simple term. It's it's the invasion and subjugation of one group by another, and mm -hmm. and really, it's colonization is really perpetuated after the initial. Uh, of con control over indigenous people that is achieved through this invasion and subjugation. And um, it's, it's really um, important for, for folks to know that, you know, colonization is not, um, it's not just an event, you know, it's an ongoing process that continues to happen, right? So, so under colonization, you know, and I, I, I really kind of try to hold colonization more for indigenous people. That's, that's a very different form of colonization than other people's minds being colonized colonized as opposed to your whole land, your whole body, your whole mm -hmm. history is colonized. Mm -hmm. It's very different. So sometimes when you, we use the term colonization, uh, people use it in, in, in terms of like it's oppression or it's subjugation of one kind. But colonization for indigenous people is meant a whole loss of a life, of, of a life way, of customs, of beliefs, of the land, of their connection and imprisonment, not just imprisonment in your mind, but uh, a physical incarceration of people held on reservations or held in reserves or held in different places throughout the world. So colonization is, is, uh, has that kind of uh, aspect to it. And it's really about, you know, this uh, dispossession of lands, territories and resources and preventing indigenous people from exercising their right, you know, to self-determination and development according to their, who they are as indigenous people, right? Um, so if, if, if that were the case, if colonization was not, you know, uh, happening, indigenous people would still be on large tracts of land. They would still, you know, we would still be living and trading and doing all these different kinds of things that we did before colonization. And, and you know, colonization is really a toxic, uh, unwielding power, right? Uh, people have talked about it in that way. And um, I, I'd like to quote this uh, Fanon, who is this anti-colonial uh, psychiatrist, 
who says that you know um, colonialism is, is not a thinking machine or a body endowed with reasoning faculties. It's a it's violent in its natural state and will only yield uh, when it's confronted with greater violence. And we sort of saw some of that with George Floyd, you know, um, that colonization of, of, you know, um, of people in their minds so that they couldn't react. And when people came out on the streets after uh, George Floyd was murdered and they began to confront, you know, the system with all its racist images, you know, its uh, racist words, its, you know, homophobic, um, you know, attitudes and its, you know, marginalization of people of color, BIPOC people. And they started to take down these, you know, racist monuments of these uh, Southern leaders, these uh, uh, racist words that were taken down, like the Washington Redskins ended up finally changing their name. That's, that's what Fanon is talking about, that colonization doesn't yield unless people, you know, come together and, and, and force it to yield, you know, as, 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 as a greater, stronger body. And it's really, it's really about, you know, subjugation where um, people, as I said, um, are not only are confined, but they're controlled and manipulated in the sense that colonization, you know, has many different forms like classic colonization, internal colonialism. And, and um, there's, um, there's uh, you know, predatory uh, colonization, and even what they call settler colonialism, where uh, now we kind of live in the world of settler colonialism, Turtle Island in North America and, and different places like Australia or Altira in New Zealand, uh, where um, settlers still live and control the lands, and the indigenous people's voices have been almost completely cut off, right? Um, so in that sense, um, um, Patrick Wolfe, who's written about settler colonialism, says that, you know, settlers are, are people who are not indigenous, no matter who they are. Some people end up, you know, in, in our territories, you know, by slave trade or force. Some people come here because of war or escaping, you know, climate change or they're refugees from one sort or another. Um, but they're all settlers, right? And so colonization is about, you know, pushing out the native person, settler colonialism, uh, taking away the voice, taking away their history, and taking away their their um, their presence, so that most people don't know about indigenous people. You know, I've, I've been to places where people have said to me, "I didn't know there were indigenous or, or Native Americans left, or American Indians left. I thought you were all dead." But that's you know um, the history, right? And that, that continues to happen when you watch the news, you read the papers, you're on social media. You just don't see a lot of uh, Native people. And that's another part of colonization is that. You know, it's the um, subjugation of indigenous people's identity and their presence in society and ignoring all of the things that I mentioned earlier, all the uh, violence that's been perpetuated against them, all the poverty that they live in, all of the marginalization, all of the, um, you know, poor health and, and the, the, the circumstances that are very challenging that they live in. So colonization is really that kind of invasion and subjugation. Oh. Well, I'm glad you made that very important distinction um, that when you're talking about colonization, you're talking about the effect and the impact that that this kind of uh, subjugation uh, has had, uh, in this case, on indigenous peoples. And I guess what I was pointing to maybe with the mindset of colonization, I guess, is the mindset of the colonizer that it, that for those of us who, you know, we may not feel we weren't around back then. But it, if, we're, if we don't realize that we're still participating in the process of colonization, we could be unconsciously perpetuating it. But I think the, 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 the important thing to talk about here is your work with the young people and how you're able to help them 
sort of undo some of the impact of colonization, at least for their own uh, their own mindset, their own psychology, their own emotional well-being and their own life possibilities. Uh, so could, maybe you could talk now maybe about uh, mindful decolonization and neuro decolonization and how how you would work with youth uh, uh, to not only help them deal with the, the real challenges that Native American youth are facing throughout the U.S. and Canada. And it depends on where they are, but it can still be incredibly challenging. Uh, I've spent some time at Pine Ridge and other places in South Dakota, an incredibly unresourced area, tremendous poverty uh, that people are growing up in. So not only dealing with that, but also how to really to liberate their own mindset from from the impacts of colonization. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, so yeah, that's a great question. One of the things that that I've um, done with youth uh, early on, uh, the first time I taught Indigenous youth uh, any form of mindfulness practice was uh, 1992 when I was at the University of British Columbia. Um, and I, I might have mentioned, you know, um, that I did the work with the, the youth in, in Eureka. These, uh, and the same thing happened at, at the University of British Columbia um, when I was a professor there. Uh, one of my students called me from the Ab- Aboriginal Friendship Center on East Hastings and said, I need to do some activities with Native youth, and I'm not really sure how to do it. I'm just a white girl. I don't know what to do. You know, So I, I went down and sat down, and I, I did some practice with uh, these uh, homeless youth uh, from the streets, uh, Aboriginal youth from uh, Vancouver. And one of the things we began to talk about was decolonization and colonization and how people ended up on the streets and students talked a lot about that. They talked about their circumstances, how they ended up coming from their reserves into Vancouver and, you know, the, the long path there and how they ended up on the streets and what they were doing to survive as a group on the streets. Not only did, they, did, they, did their, you know, great grandparents and their parents, their grandparents and parents and them all face, you know, the colonization, but then they had to flee from it too, from the poverty. They were fleeing from the violence. They were fleeing from this place where, you know, they were incarcerated on these reserves, you know, more or less, they came to the city and they were trying to make a go of it. And so one of the things that, you know, um, I started doing with them is, is uh, some uh, breath awareness exercises and, and talking about, you know, empowerment and the breath and that sort of thing. So, you know, from that point, I started thinking about how important decolonization was in the, of the mind and how uh, mindfulness and contemplative practices could be a part of that. So I came up with this term called neurodecolonization some years back, and it really refers to the use of contemporary and traditional contemplative practices that, you know, can be used to heal the mind from the traumas of colonization. Uh, and, and so I, I developed it as a conceptual framework, and uh, that uses mindfulness research. I've looked at mindfulness research to facilitate ex- uh, an examination of the ways that, you know, uh, that, you know, the human brain that's been colonized is affected by the colonial situation mm-hmm. and to do an exploration of mind-body activities that um, really change the neural networks and enable individuals to overcome these different effects of trauma and oppression that come from colonization, like residential schools, like poverty, like hate crimes, like marginalization, having your land taken away. And, and so I set about, you know, developing through my curriculum uh, some uh, neurodecolonization, uh, mindful, uh, mindful decolonization exercises to restore an individual's sense of well-being, you know, and, and sense of resilience to pr- promote healthy behaviors, thoughts, emotions, and actions, and to transform and, and to teach young, young, young people that they can not only transform themselves, but they can use their healing as they heal to transform, you know, the structures of oppression that exist 
a big part of that, though, as I mentioned earlier, fleet is, you know, being on the land and, and kids reconnecting to the land, reconnecting to the, you know, the, the world around them, re- reconnecting to their stories, their philosophies, their histories, their ceremonies, you know, those things that made them resilient people in the first place, you know, that they brought along. And, um, and it, it's, it's the idea that, you know, when, when I'm teaching um, mindful decolonization practices, you know, um, it's, it's, it's really, to me, it's not only an act of healing, but it's an act of resistance against colonialism. It's a revolution to me, mm-hmm. the mind, the brain, and the spirit that, that I think young people, that we can help them, you know, to extinguish the anguish, anguish and the confusion that they, that they experience living in a colonial situation. That colonialism and hate and hate crimes, you know, are, are, are too big or too abstract or too difficult to overcome. You know, that, that you know, like their ancestors, like their teachers, like their healers, like their spiritual you know, guides have told them that, you know, there's a path that you need to follow as a warrior. You know, and, and, and you pick up things along the way. Keep them close to you. They'll make you strong. And, and what they're talking about is the language, the ceremonies, the wisdom. And calling on your ancestors, right? These are the things that help, to me, in, in mindful decolonization, help transform colonialism. So it's not, you know, too big. And, 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 and by the way, you know, transforming colonialism is not just something indigenous people have to do. Settlers, settlers, non-indigenous people also have to be brought into the struggle to transform colonialism. Mm-hmm. And what neurodecolonization does and mindful decolonization does is it invites non-Indigenous people to become allies with Indigenous people, to engage in, in mutual, you know, mindful decolonization practices where they sit or they, they run or they, whatever they do, to mindfully do these practices together that are the practices that are transformative and they enable the growth of, you know, uh, creative, healthy, decolonized ways of thinking and being and doing it, and um, the connection with, connection with others to build community, right? It, once they build community, you know, the strength in numbers, just like we saw with George Floyd, they can challenge the limitations and the stressors of the colonized thinking and the colonized ways of being. And so that's, to me, that's kind of when I think about, you know, uh, neurodecolonization and uh, all this more mindful decolonization is, 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 is thinking about how those, what the end product is and what we're always aiming for, right? So, um, and it's, it's in recognition, as I said, to, to colonization. It's not just my everyday stress or my oppression or I feel bad today. It's like the idea that there's been this colonization that's been sort of building and accumulating and gaining strength, you know, when it's not challenged or resisted or, you know, gently sort of dismantled, you know, or lovingly dismantled, however you want to dismantle it. Mm-hmm. Wow. So everything you're describing, everything you're describing um, is very much an enlightenment in, in alignment with um, you know, with trauma-informed mindfulness, with m- the way mindfulness is incorporated into trauma healing in a lot of times, ty- in many different types of trauma work um, and, uh, and also the work to deconstruct racism and so forth. Um, and I'm wondering, in, a, in, a, in working with the youth, whether it's helpful to them to actually, I'm sure they realize, I mean, they, they have some sense of their history and the history of, of colonization already, but is it helpful that they actually learn something about and understand that there are these, there is such a thing as intergenerational trauma and historical trauma and even the epigenetic uh, impact of that. And that, that the reason they may be struggling in their life is not just 
their own strengths or weaknesses or character or whatever, that they're actually they're in this really challenging situation. Is it helpful for them to have that context and that information? Yeah, it is. And I, and I think that's one of the things that I do, not only with youth, but I do it with, with um, elders and, and adults as well, mm-hmm. is to explain that, you know, at one time, people had different roles and responsibilities, you know, years and years ago. Uh, and they were good at certain kinds of things. And one of the things we understand from cultural neuroscience is that, you know, culture and genes evolve together. So that if we are, let's say, for example, we are a group of people that believe in, um, you know, um, collectivist democracy or something. So we all have to have a say or many says before, you know, we decide on a course of action. We continue to do that, that kind of cooperation, that kind of thinking, that kind of behavior at some point will begin to help our genes express in a particular kind of way or will develop genes around that to help support that democratic kind of thinking, right? Just like an artist, uh, you know, uh, you, come, you look at artists, for example, um, I believe that when, when um, people who are artists, who are poets, who are musicians, who are performers in the arts are people that are probably who have developed, you know, high levels of sensitivity, you know, towards things. Right, they're writers, whatever. So there's a really good bit of research that's been um, coming out in psychology now about orchid children and dandelion children, and how these sensitivities work in people. And we know that you know dandelion orchid kids are this real sensitive, intelligent, um, creative individuals, but yet they're very vulnerable to stress and hardship and oppression. They're very vulnerable, and then like an orchid, they can fold very easily under that kind of that kind of tension and that kind of uh, environment, yet they're very creative. Um, and, and you have other kids who are like dandelion kids. Um, my older brother, who was, who was uh, in uh, the military during Vietnam, who was a special forces, uh, uh, force, uh, force recon guy. It's like that, you know, I'm very different from him. He's very, you know, can walk through fire. I can't, you know, and, and he's, um, so we have these differences that existed in society, even way back when, before colonization, where people come down who have these vulnerabilities as orchid kids, have these particular genetic profiles. You take those folks, you take them, and you from that situation, you put them into an environment where it's even more challenged. You're going to find, which I, I think, you know, my theory is you're going to find what you see among Native populations around the world, higher levels of, of self-harm, higher levels of um, of uh, abuse to oneself. And, uh, and, and so suicide, you know, numbers, you see those numbers that are high among indigenous children, right? Why is that? People say, well, it's trauma. Yeah, of course it's trauma. But the epigenetic part of it we don't talk about, which is this person probably inherited some point back a very high level of sensitivity, maybe several generations ago. Their families were artists or poets, or they were spiritual storytellers. So they had to have that sensitivity. So they had to be very sensitive to things. You take that sensitivity and you fast forward it down to this world now where there's so much hate, hate crimes, poverty, you know, and, and marginalization. You're going to see, you know, the perfect storm where some of these children are going to, you know, be at higher risk and more vulnerable. So you're right. I think, you know, we need to study epigenetics a lot more. And I think you're going to see that. In, in indigenous um, collectivist populations, at least, you know, the cultural neuroscience supports that where maybe uh, you'll see in some populations, and of course, this is what I tell youth too, maybe you inherited the gene 
called the ADRA2B, A-D-R-A-2, lowercase b gene, which makes you a sensitive person to negativity. At one point, you know, thousands of years ago, as your ancestors survived because they were very sensitive to negativity. So they, they, mis- they were mistrustful, they were cautious, and so on. But they carry that gene down. And um, along with that gene, there, there's also what, um, in this particular gene study, is what they call emotionally enhanced vividness, meaning that if they're exposed to a trauma, that trauma you know, is not like a person who doesn't have two copies of that particular gene. Um, that there, you know, who just says, oh, well, that was, boy, that was quite a trauma. This other person will see it, they'll smell it, they'll relive it, the memory, and it'll be like very complex and very difficult to go away. But at one time, it served them well that they needed to have that very vivid, emotionally enhanced experience so they could be storytellers, they could be artists, they could be seers, they could divine the future, right? So that kind of thing now exists today that we are barely even getting a handle on. So, you know, anyone who studies trauma, I think, needs to understand you know, that, there, that not only do these genes exist, but as you said, epigenetically, it may be even more powerful for people like indigenous people or other people of color who are put in these circumstances, which is why you see higher levels of, uh, um, you know, um, um, or lower life expectancy, more disease you know, more isolation, more different kinds of um, bad outcomes, right? Uh, We're just now discovering those kinds of things. And um, the evidence is clear, but when you look at the history, at one point, you know, as I said, and and bears uh, repeating, those things were an advantage to us. Now we're in this place where it's called, you know, an evolutionary mismatch. It doesn't work well in the society, you know, so. Well, it's fascinating. And yeah, the, the, what's happening with neuroscience and so with the, the depth at which we're beginning to understand these things is so important because we can't make assumptions about what other people's experience is. It can be rad- not only across cultures, but even within cultures, it can be radically different. And, you know, and there is that, I like that image of, you know, the artist, which always has that natural sensitivity versus the dandelion, right. That can grow anywhere. And, and, you know, a lot of our, you know, be- the beginning of our deeper understanding of trauma began with the aversive uh, childhood experience studies, and uh, and we saw that, you know, they said in the same situation, some children thrived and some were really traumatized and debilitated. Right. Uh, and there's also this uh, this possibility of post-traumatic growth, uh, and, you know, and there's, you know, the age old idea of the wounded healer. Right. And and very often, even I think an indigenous person, sometimes the seer or the medicine person or so forth has been through some kind of illness, been through some kind of trauma. Uh, so. You know, and that's not to to justify trauma at all, but it it is. There's always the possibilities, but it requires a lot of sensitivity and and not making any assumptions about any particular individual and what they may actually be experiencing or dealing with or or what their pathway to healing might look like. Mm-hmm. Um, along those lines, I want I just we're kind of near the end of our time, but one one thing you mentioned before, you mentioned the the culture of warriorship in in native traditions, and so. When for any human beings, when when we've really suffered a lot of trauma of, of, of whatever kinds, uh, it can really push us into kind of a very disempowered kind of victim mindset. And we have been victimized. So it's completely natural to feel that way. But it can lead us into identifying with that in such a way that it becomes very disempowering. Uh, and I'm wondering if what's the pathway to to, you know, realize, yes, I have been victimized but then sign up, move into healing and empowering oneself 
and that sense of warriorship. And and is that sense of warriorship more appropriate for the more, to use your analogy, the dandelion uh, type, or is it is it cross with with the artistic type as well? But but you know, I'm just wondering how how to come out. You know, in terms of fully recognizing, you know, these impacts of colonization, all kinds of victimization and and resisting it and pushing back and stopping it. Uh, and but also doing the work so you can move forward in your own life in a more empowered way. Um, and I'm curious about the, the, the ethic of warriorship within Native traditions and how that all might connect. Yeah. So warriorship has changed over the years. It's changed a lot, you know. Um, and there are different kinds of warriors. There are different kinds of warriors that existed within society. Um, a lot of times um, people don't realize that, that you know, um, when, when people back in the day before colonization, there were uh, so many rites of passages that young people went through. And of course, they were vetted and they were watched and observed to find out how uh, young people went through these rites of passage. Maybe some went through as dandelions. Maybe some went through as you know, orchids or whatever, you mm-hmm. know, however they went through. And of course, you know, they were selected to do different kinds of things to where their strengths were most, uh, most beneficial to themselves and to, to others so that they could have this enlightenment and realization about what their purpose was. And so that's one of the things that we don't do uh, these days is we don't provide that kind of healthy rites of passage for young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't guide them through those hardships. We don't coach them through those challenges in their life. You know, that's a full-time job of doing that. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, so it's not just a part-time kind of thing. Kids, you know, mm-hmm. can go to school eight hours a day and they can get none of that. But, you know, to me, in, as I look at indigenous cultures around the world, developmentally, that was critical to their survival and their well-being and their ability to have resilience against some of the, you know, forces they couldn't control. And so that when death appeared, or when hunger appeared, you know, they, they, they used whatever was available to count coup on that kind of thing, to touch, to touch fear, to touch death, to touch hunger, whatever it is, to understand, you know, that, that, you know, um, that the idea that, you know, I'm here in the here and now, and that impermanence is part of the condition of human beings. And while we're here, we work towards that common goal of being, you know, bringing out the highest good and the greatest purpose that we have. But, but at a very early age, people are coached to do that and they're guided to do that, to take on those hardships. You know, and I think that's one of the things about before eating, even getting to, you know, consider yourself to be a warrior in this, in this training sort of uh, um, this mode, I guess, for different periods of time. And you're instructed and you're, and you're talked to and you're, you're um, you know, you're celebrated, you're, you're protected. You know, you're doctored, all these things to help you move through these different stages, you know, of, of, of challenge in your life. Uh, some cultures used to take, um, like, uh, I think it's Yupik cultures, uh, used to take uh, the young boys from their moms at age 10. No more mommy. You go out with the men and they would learn from the men about being a man, how to, how to you know, how to, uh, you know, give back to the village their responsibilities. They could have never, ever survived in the conditions that they lived in, in the Arctic, you know, such harsh conditions, if they did not have a particular kind of way to build that resilience early on. I know that from the studies that I've done about indigenous cultures, that all the things that they've done, singing, dancing, celebrating, fasting, uh, prayer, meditation, all these different kinds of things, 
you know, challenging themselves, you know, through many different kinds of ways, help bring around, help build up and being guided through that helps um, build cognitive resilience in the brain. And I've seen brain scans of, of how cognitive resilience shows up, you know, in, in the prefrontal cortex, you know, and, and, you know, what kinds of things bring about, you know, um, this mild bioenergetic stress that when you challenge children, you know, to, 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 to do something, you know, to, you know, to hold their focus, listen to the story, swim across this cold pool of water, or to, you know, whatever it is they do, those kinds of things today are what, uh, those kinds of things what indigenous people did years ago would, would produce mild bioenergetic stress in the body, making the, the cells, challenging the cells, and the cells res respond by getting stronger. We know that science now. We don't do those kinds of things. You know, we barely give kids any time now today, you know, for uh, a play in school. They barely get recess or time to play or explore or to, you know, do things like we did when we were like free range kids back in the reservation. We spent hours and hours on the land, you know, riding horses, swimming on these, you know, these rivers or climbing these hills or doing all these things that, you know, challenged us. And of course, when we when we danced or we, we prayed or we participated in ceremony, we always had elders there guiding us through those kinds of things. And we were challenged, you know, uh, in different ways to do these kinds of things, right? And of course, at that time, when I was growing up, some of that stuff was being banned or it was being lost along the way. So now I think what we're doing is we're returning back to that time, which decolonization is all about. People are now rediscovering things like mindfulness, which is an ancient practice, you know, to, in order to cope with, with the stress. But it'll help us cope with the stress. Is it going to change, you know, um, Structural oppression, is it going to change racism and hate crimes? I don't know. You know, there maybe there has to be, you know, we have to do more, more than that to kind of prepare the person to actually become, you know, as they move to become that warrior. And among a lot of the Great Plains tribes, you know, being a warrior, you get one feather for bravery. You get two for this. You get three pretty soon. You see this person who is not only brave, but they're a very impeccable behavior. They're very kind. They're generous. They're helpful. That's what a warrior is. It's not just one one feather about you know harming others or killing others or fighting others. It's about all these different ways that a person has learned to become a complete human being, and that's when you see you know uh, someone you know um, endowed with all these feathers or all these you know accoutrements of, of, that are sacred. So, well, Michael, it's been an incredibly rich conversation and. Um, obviously, we have a long way to go in terms of bringing back wisdom culture um, uh, into humanity altogether. And for those of us of, of, who are among settler and European population, at least try to get out of the way of indigenous people being able to do that for themselves. But, you know, humanity altogether, I mean, we, we just there's such a need to return to a wisdom based culture and to properly bring children into that. Uh, because clearly the impacts of not doing that are becoming obviously unsustainable. So this is really rich. And a lot of what you said, not to take away anything from the specificity of it to indigenous culture, but a lot of what you've been talking about in terms of the mindset and the work, I, I think it really applies to prison work altogether and working with incarcerated populations and, and how we can transform the criminal justice system I mean, and deconstruct. I mean, the criminal justice system is just another kind of form of some kind of colonization or whatever. It's certainly oppression. And so how do we decondition ourselves and deconstruct that and help the people who are 
you know, in the in these systems and the people working in these systems, we, we all have to find some way to liberate all this. And I think that deep understanding that you've been talking about, about the conditioning and about the trauma and how to begin to undo that through mindfulness and contemplative practices, uh, just in, incredibly important and very rich. Thank you. Thank you, Fleet. So how can people find out more about your work? I know you have a website. I do have a website called in, uh, indigenousmindfulness.com. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you can find that on the web, indigenousmindfulness.com. But also um, a lot of my work uh, you can find also on my um, faculty website at the University of Manitoba, Faculty of Social Work. So, Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Be well, and thank you for being part of our summit. Thank you, Fleet. Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.